Father, thank you just for the time that we have today. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to study it freely without persecution. Lord, we thank you for that. Pray that as we dive in today that we would just come away with a better understanding of who you are, a better understanding of your love, and a better understanding of the cross and the sacrifice that was paid. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen. All right, well, for those of you who were with us two weeks ago, you'll remember we started John chapter 11, and John chapter 11 is the story of three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they're from a small town just outside Jerusalem called Bethany. Um, And I don't know about you, but if you were here, for me, the passage definitely was a gut check, kind of put things in perspective. Um, I think one of my one of my takeaways was actually a verse in Isaiah, which I think sums up that whole passage pretty well, but it's Isaiah 55, and it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. No matter what happens, God is good. Would you agree with that? No matter what happens, God is good. And sometimes life is going to punch you in the face. Am I right? And then you're going to fall down, you're going to turn around, you're going to dust yourself off, you're going to get back up, and then it's going to punch you in the face again. All right? At least that's, I think, most of our experiences. All right? And even in your pain, God is good. Today, as we wrap up John 11, I want to give you just a little recap for those maybe who missed the first time we went through this. So the story starts out with Lazarus, who's a friend of Jesus, and he's ill. He's sick. Um, And literally on his deathbed, his sisters don't know what to do. So they send a messenger to Jesus. Jesus is beyond the Jordan. As it says in the last part of John 10, he's beyond the Jordan. He's ministering in an area called Perea where John the Baptist started his ministry. So this messenger goes out from Bethany. The messenger finds Jesus. um, And here's what the message says. It says, Lord, the one you love is ill. The one you love is ill. And basically what they're saying is, Lord... Lazarus needs you to act on his behalf. But don't rush over this way because Lazarus loves you. Rush this way because you love Lazarus. All right? And it's just, it's sometimes we don't think of it that way. We think, oh Lord, I love you so much. I love you so much. Act on my behalf. The Lord loves us and he acts on our behalf because of his love. He sent his son because of his love for us. And that's the message they send. The one that you love is ill. So Jesus gets the message, and here's what John says. It says, Now Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, so he stayed two days longer. So he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, so, not but, so he stayed. He loved them, so he stayed two days longer. They needed him to come right now, but he stayed two days longer. And that's sometimes hard for us to think about. He didn't answer their request, their, their prayer, if you will. He waited. And after two days had passed, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, all right, we need to go to Bethany. So they set out for Bethany. By the time they get there, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus obviously knew that he was going to die. He knew he was dead. And this was no surprise to him. He actually tells his disciples on their way, on the way on their journey, he says, I'm glad we weren't there because I want to strengthen your belief. Like, I'm glad we weren't there so you could believe. So they arrive in Bethany, and they're still a little ways off. And it's kind of where we pick up the story today. But they're, they're, he's still a little ways off. Probably this entourage is traveling over to Bethany. Lots of people following Jesus, his disciples around him. And so it says when they're still a little far ways off, 
John eleven twenty one. Mary, or excuse me, Martha runs up to Jesus, one of the sisters, and here's what she says. John eleven twenty one. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Run straight up to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a pretty bold statement, but thankfully we get to see other interactions of Mary and Martha throughout other parts of the Bible. So John 10, or excuse me, Luke 10 is actually where we're introduced to Mary and Martha. And so if, you know, she's never been one to shy away from opening her mouth. At least that's what we see in other parts of scripture. So Luke 10 is a per- perfect example. All right, this is where we believe Jesus first meets Mary and Martha, or one of the first times. So Luke ten thirty eight says, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So Jesus enters the house back in Luke 10. He enters into the house like he always does. He starts teaching. Okay, and Martha's in the kitchen. She's getting food ready. I assume after the teaching, they're going to have some kind of meal. So she's in there getting the food ready, and she needs some help. And she looks around. She goes, where's my sister? You know, and you can probably picture what she's doing. Where's my sister? And so she's looking in the kitchen, can't see her. She looks out into the family room, and there's Jesus teaching like he always does. Crowd of people around, and there's Mary sitting right at his feet. And she's mad. And she goes to Jesus right there, probably in the middle of all these people. And she says, I need help. She's not helping me. She's just sitting there chilling. Okay, and Jesus looks at her, and he does really what, you know, what we'd expect him to do. He says, Martha, calm down. She's chosen what is better. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. All right, and we have no idea how the story ends back in Luke 10. No idea what happens. We have no idea the reaction that took place from that point out. But it gives us good insight for John 11. Okay, because you can kind of picture the personalities of the two sisters just based on that one interaction. So you got Martha, who's probably a type A, probably a little, you're laughing, I don't know if that's because you're a type A or what, but um, probably type A, probably scheduled, probably a go-getter, obviously outspoken. She doesn't have a lot of time for sitting around like her sister Mary, all right? She's logical. She needs to, things need to make sense up here. And we're going to see a little more of that. Things need to make sense up here, all right? Then you got Mary, all right? Mary, on the other hand, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. When I picture her sitting there, she's got like a, you know, kind of like a Woodstock bandana around her head from the 60s, you know, just sitting there, sitting at his feet, nodding, taking it all in, probably a little emotional, probably a little melancholy. She needs to feel it here more so than it needs to make sense up here. Very different personalities, Now, some of this I'm making assumptions on, but I don't think it's too far of a stretch. All right, so back in John 11, Jesus shows up four days into the funeral. says Lazarus has already been dead for four days. All right, and who's the first one to show up? Jesus doesn't even get to the house. He's two miles away from the house, give or take. And oh, there he is. Yep, yep. And she's off. She runs over to him. You know, Mary doesn't even know what's going on. Mary's still at the house. So she takes up and what does she say? The first thing she said to him is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And listen to what Jesus says, verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Simple, straightforward, logical, even. Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Like, I've thought this through. She knows her scripture. She knows there's a future resurrection. But that's not helping me right now. 
That's not helping me with what I'm going through. I need to process this. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't giving her, when he in that moment says your brother will rise again, he's not giving her a theology lesson about the future. He's trying to change her perspective on what's happening right now. That's what he's doing. He's trying to change her perspective on right now. In verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let me read that last part again. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. All right, death is like this. We said this two weeks ago. It's like this split second transaction, transition maybe, in time. Literally. It's a split second transition in time. Even though you will experience a physical death, those who place their faith in Jesus will spend forever with him. Sometimes we, I think we forget that. I mean, it's, that's what most of scripture is pointing to. It's pointing to the fact that we have a savior, that we have somebody who died on the cross for our sins, who paid the price of the penalty that we should have paid and paid it in our place. All right, the future resurrection, this is like, like I picture Jesus saying this to Martha. The future resurrection that you're so focused on, it's not gonna happen without me. I am the resurrection. Think about that. I am the resurrection. I'm the one who gives life. And in fact, not only am I the one who gives life, I am life. Like, that's what Jesus is saying. I am, I'm the one who created life. You're talking to me about things like somebody here and somebody's in a great, I created life. I know all this. Every part about this is me. And I have to imagine the logical side of her is like, what? Like, I, I, like you know, she gets it, but she doesn't get it. The spiritual side of her is probably like, okay, wow, that was a little too much to handle right there. But here's the thing. Everything she's studied, and the same is true with you. Everything she has studied, everything she's read, Everything she knows about the resurrection is embodied in a person. Does that make sense? I mean, it sounds like I'm stating the obvious, but everything she knows, everything she's read, everything she knows about the resurrection is embodied in a person, and that person is Jesus. It's like a moment where her, I look at it like this, a moment where the theology, her theology, her study of God has been lifted off the page and it becomes real. Okay, how many of you can remember a time in your life where your faith became real? I'm not saying your faith wasn't real before. I'm just saying there was something that happened in your life where your study of God was no longer a study of God. It was God. Does that make sense? It was like, okay, I'm, I'm grasping this now for the first time. This theological idea is now a lifeline that I can't live without. It's like, okay, I've been studying, studying, okay, here. Like, because you can have a lot of knowledge. There are people with so much knowledge of Scripture, and they aren't followers of Christ. It's almost like a point where your knowledge becomes something real. For me, it was when I was 25. I've been walking with Jesus a couple years. And while he definitely had a hold of certain parts of my life, there were other parts that I I was still clinging to. Okay? So Jesus had a lot of it, but he didn't have all of it. And he wants all of it. Okay, and so, you know, most of me wanted Jesus, but there was like this safety net. That's probably the easiest way to explain it. This safety net of worldly pleasures that I had. So when Jesus didn't work out, I had something to fall back on. So I'd read my Bible, but I didn't get much out of it. I'd pray on and off, but I didn't really experience the power of prayer that I saw other people experiencing. 
or at least perceived other people to experience. I went to church, but I didn't really commit because honestly, probably because I thought Christians were weird. Um, some of you aren't. No, just kidding. Um, it's just like I didn't get it. I didn't know why they spent their money a certain way. I didn't know why they did this. I didn't know why they quit their jobs and moved over here. I, didn't, I mean, I just, I, I didn't, okay, it, it was paper to me. Jesus was paper. He was a Bible. Something I read. He wasn't a person. He wasn't real, okay? And then at 25, you know, everything's great. And, you know, I hit the proverbial rock bottom. Anybody been there? You don't have to raise your hand. You've been there? Proverbial rock bottom. You're laying in a pit and you know you have a decision to make. Do I run to Jesus over here? Or do I run to all the places I've historically run to in a time of need? Drugs, alcohol, partying, fun, food, money. You know, you just fill in the blank with whatever that is for you. And at 25, like every time in my life, I'd run this way. And every time in my life, it had just made me deeper and deeper in the pit. And so at 25, I was like, okay, for the first time in my life, I'm going to run that way. I don't know what that way looks like. I don't even know if I trust going that way. I don't know if I'm going to have fun going that way. But I ran that way and I pursued him with everything I had. And the beauty is, in that moment for me, he became a person instead of words in a book. And that's really, really important, right? He became a comforter. Where before I didn't understand what that comfort was, I didn't really know anything about. I knew the Holy Spirit was the comforter. I had never really experienced that comfort. And my pursuit of Christ made it real. I, could, I understood what everybody talked about, the comforter. All right? He became a shepherd instead of some ideological, historical, 2,000-year-old figure. He became a real shepherd that could lead me where I needed to go. And my life was never the same. And so my question for you before we go any further is, have you ever truly run after Jesus? I know you're here, and that's an awesome place to start. But have you ever gotten rid of the things that you have in the back to cling to when, when you think Jesus might not be there? Have you got rid of all the other vices maybe and just said, all right, Lord, I'm going to go after you? No ifs, ands, buts. I'm putting all my eggs in your basket. Have you ever truly, truly made that decision? G.K. GK Chesterton says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's, become, it's found difficult and left untried. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. All right, was it easy? No. Was everything perfect from 25 till now? No. Was I tempted to run back the other direction? Absolutely. But God is good. All right, and so Martha's trying to wrap her mind around this idea, okay, this person, this resurrection, this thing I've been studying, this thing I know, this future resurrection I know about, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And she's trying to wrap her mind around this, trying, trying to get logical about it. And so she goes back to her sister, verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, Mary saying in private. So there would have been a lot of people in the house. So she goes up to her sister in private. And she says, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So quick background on Jewish funerals. Um, I think it really helps the story, but first, the first thing is, in a Jewish funeral, the goal was to get them into the ground as soon as possible. 
That was, that was the imperative goal. The Jews didn't embalm like the Egyptians did. You know, the Egyptians embalmed, the Jews didn't do that. So decomposition would have started almost immediately. They would wrap the body, wrap the hands, wrap the feet, wrap the head, and all kinds of linen cloth. And then they would put spices over the body. So you remember when Jesus, before Jesus could take him off the cross, they're going to put him in the tomb. Nicodemus, who we read about in John chapter 3, actually brings 75 pounds of spices to put on the Lord. Like that's, that's what they did. They brought these spices and depending upon maybe how wealthy your family was would depend upon how many spices you can bring. The tomb would have been outside the village, kind of away from where everybody lived. And it was probably a catacomb of sorts with maybe multiple tombs inside one entrance, inside of a cave. Um, and it probably would have looked something like, I brought, got some pictures. They, they really do believe in Bethany this day, there's a place outside where they have, they believe this was Lazarus's real tomb where he was like, I don't know if that's true or not, but either way, it gives you a good picture into what this may have looked like. So this is the, go back to the, the previous one. So this is a kind of the entrance. If you were standing on outside on like sea level, if you will, there would have been a place where a rock might have been and then you could take the rock away and you could have gone down into the tomb and there would have been stairs descending down in and then there was like a landing and a lot of times on that landing there would be multiple graves or tombs that you could they could put bodies in maybe a whole family would be buried in there or something like that and then the next picture is where they actually believe this was Lazarus's tomb where he was laid again I don't know that it doesn't matter if it was or it wasn't but it just gives you a picture of what they're talking about here all right the body would have been laid to rest this procession this huge procession would have gone with them to the tomb they would have turned around they would have come back they would have eaten a meal then probably would have been hard-boiled eggs lentils something like that very traditional jewish meal Um, and then there for the next seven days there would be mourners in the house okay now the funeral itself would last for 30 days in a lot of cases i mean it would go 30 days but the first seven days were really the most crucial and there would be you know even the the poorest Jewish family was expected to hire at least two flute players and a professional mourner. I know that sounds weird, but Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they were, from what we can tell, they were a prominent family, so they probably had many professional mourners that would have been there. I know it sounds strange to us today. Why would you need a professional mourner? Were you not sad? Like, what do, what do, you, what do, you, what do you need here? Um, but it was traditional because these people would help heal. They would almost lead the mourning of the, of the Jewish family, so they could, you know, it would help them heal. And they don't, they didn't mourn like we mourn. You know, and a lot of times when we're at a funeral, everybody's trying to hold it in and be strong and, you know, <gasps> somebody made, you know, somebody cried. Somebody, I mean, they, they, they had none of that. They knew that just letting it out for seven days and mourning and wailing and screaming and crying and then going for a total of 30 days, it was healthy. It was helpful. You know, you were lamenting the fact that someone you loved had died. And after 30 days, you know, you put your big boy pants on and you go about life. And that's, that's kind of the way that they looked at it. So that's, this is the scene that when Mary runs up to Jesus, she has a crowd of mourners. It said the mourners came with her, assuming that she was going to the, to the tomb to mourn. So this would have been the procession of people that would have come with her. And it says in verse 32... Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So here's this difference in the sisters again. They say the exact same thing. I don't know if that was Martha chirping in Mary's ear for four days, but they literally use the same phrase, okay? Martha runs up demanding where Jesus was. 
Mary runs up and falls at his feet. Very different reactions. All right, both sisters say the exact same thing, but Jesus comforts them very differently, which I think is unique. Okay, to Martha, he's black and white. He's logical. There will be a resurrection. Your brother will rise again. To Mary, look what happens when he comforts Mary. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. John says Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and Jesus wept. Now don't, just look at those words. Look at those words. I mean, you can, you could, we could preach 10 sermons on those two words. Jesus wept. This is the God, the God. This is the creator of the universe. And he's weeping. Shortest verse in the Bible, but it has so much deep meaning behind it. Like, I, I've tried to, like, put myself in his shoes, which is probably blasphemy in itself, but I try to put myself in his shoes and think, like, what is he, like, like I understand parts of why he's weeping, but, you know, understanding the depth of despair, the depth of what he's feeling. Okay, you ever seen those, this is probably bad to go this way, but you ever seen those movies? Um, Marley and me comes to mind for some reason, I don't know why, but at the very end of the movie, it's like when something happens or someone passes away, they flash pictures of the person's life. And it's like, and over the course of like 30 seconds, there's usually some dramatic music playing in the background. But over the course of like a minute, you just see picture after picture after picture after picture. And it's the people who are there just, it's just running through their mind, all the things that have happened. And that's, that's the way I envision, that's what I envision with Jesus. I mean, his mind is probably going even back to the Garden of Eden. You know, he's, he's weeping and he's like, this didn't have to be. There didn't have to be death. Adam and Eve, they took that fruit, they ate. I mean, you're just picturing what is, what is he, sure, he's mourning the loss of a friend. He's hurting with his, the sisters because they lost a brother. I mean, you have to understand the depth and despair that he is feeling in that moment. He's agonizing the pain that sin has produced. The, the fact that death even has to... He's weeping for generations of future people that are going to experience death. He's weeping with people who are experiencing pain and heartache. He's weeping with people even in this church who have experienced loss loss and death and heartache. I mean, this is, this is the creator of the universe. His mind, his ways are way above ours. I, I promise you, the, those words, Jesus wept. He is empathizing with all the pain of all the future generations. Angry that people even have to die. That death even exists. And it's you know, it's, it's crazy to think about the Greeks. I was reading one commentary on this. And the Greeks, they have, you know, they look at their gods, which obviously are false gods, fake gods. But the, the Greeks look at their gods back in the day and the Romans and that. They would look at their gods. And they had one word to describe the feelings of their gods. You know, people would ask, well, what, are the, what do the gods feel? And they would use one word. It was called apatheia, which is where we get our word apathetic from. That's the way the Greeks would describe their gods. They, have no, they feel no pain. They feel no emotion. They have no ability to care. Just, that's just the way they are. We don't serve a God like that. 
And don't ever forget it. We don't serve a God like, we serve a God who cares, who loves, who feels pain, who understands pain, who hates the fact that death exists. He knows you lose a loved one. He knows the pain that you feel. He can understand. He can empathize. He knows the deepest desires of your heart. And he can empathize with those. And, the, you know, if you think about it, there's, there's parables in Scripture, like the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep. And it talks about heaven. It talks about the fact that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who comes to repentance. There is emotion in heaven. Yeah, God feels pain and there's pain for heartache on earth. But there is also rejoicing in heaven. There's rejoicing today when people walk in here and give their life to Christ. There's rejoicing today that Reggie's going to get baptized and Colin's going to get baptized. There's rejo- I mean, we serve a God who not only empathizes and cries with us in our bad times, but celebrates us with, with us in our good times. No other God is like that. We serve the only true God, and he knows what you're going through. And even the Jews couldn't help but take notice over Jesus' tears, verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he, not, could he who opened the eyes of the blind man not also have kept this man from dying? And so verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. All right, now Lazarus has been dead for four days. That's a long time, especially in the Jewish days. And those kind of traditions of, you know, no embalming, anything like that. Four days. Been a funeral, there's been mourning, there's been tears, there's been wailing, and there's, there's been a lot of hoopla around this funeral. Jesus walks up to the tomb, he wipes the tears away from his eyes, and he says, I'm about to show the world in this one instance my love for humanity. I'm about to demonstrate my power right now over death. My ability to raise the dead, to give new life. And not only is he doing it for him, he's doing it, you know, it's picture, picture that he's doing it for everybody for years to come. The fact that we all have the ability for new life. We all have the ability to live in, in heaven for eternity. That's, I mean, that, that's what you're seeing in this moment. Now, humanly speaking, removing the stone is not a good idea. Humanly speaking. And Martha's about to use her logical mind, and she's about to tell everybody around who's watching that it's not a good idea. Verse... Um, Verse 39, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. So, of course, she's the one that pipes up. And she goes, Lord, whoa, 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 whoa. I know you've just been crying. I know you've wiped tears from your eyes. I know that, you know, all this stuff's been going on. Don't take the stone away. You, using her own logic, that doesn't make any sense. Why in the world would he move that stone away? That's the dumbest thing you could do. This is not going to end well. And Lord, really what she's saying is, now if you could come over here and we could have a conversation about the stone, and you could explain to me why that stone's going to be removed, then I could get on board. Like if we talk about this and you let me see the whole picture of what's happening, like the whole thing, and you explain to me what's going to happen at the end. Like if she knew her brother was going to be raised from the dead, get the stone out of here, right? Get it out of there. But she, she can't perceive of what God is doing so she just says, no, 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 don't, don't, don't remove that stone. You ever been there? God asks you to do something that doesn't make any sense. All right, God's trying to lift your theology off the page. Yeah, you study about faith, you read about faith, you know Hebrews 11 backwards and forwards. Now let's get real. Now let's do something about it. He asks you to move, he asks you to do something... I don't want any part of that until I understand exactly what you're going to do here. Tell me the, if you tell me the whole story, Lord, then I'll have faith, right? Is that not how we are? 
That's how I am. Maybe you, maybe you guys are more faithful than I am. All right. Think of it like this. God tells Sam and Kristen, he says, move to Alabama. And I'm sure if you asked them, they were both doing just fine here. They were here two weeks ago. Remember, he moved to Alabama. Um, Kristen's a doctor. Sam owns an automotive shop. God said, move. God said, roll that stone away. I know from your perspective, Sam and Kristen, it doesn't seem logical but I'm asking you to trust me. That, that's really what he does. God says, move to Alabama, and they moved. All right, most of the things God asks you to do in your life won't make any sense from a human perspective. Give my money where? Move and be a missionary where? Quit my job and do what? Right? You read all through scripture. Abraham, go do this. Noah, build a boat. I mean, you, all of scripture they don't see the whole picture. They don't see what's going on, and it doesn't make any sense. Why in, the world, why in the world would I do this? Why in the world would I give my money to those in need? Why in the world would I become a missionary? Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see what? The glory of God. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see? And don't miss the placement of these words. He doesn't say, Didn't I tell you that you would see everything you need to see? And then I would give you the opportunity to believe. That's, that's not what he says. He says, if you believe, then you will see. If you believe, then you will see. And far too often, we don't want to obey until we see. Am I right? We don't want to obey until we see. Lord, go ahead and show me the whole picture. And then I'll let you know whether or not I want to obey. And Jesus says, that's not how faith works. I want you to trust me. And if you believe, then you'll see. And what will you see? The glory of God. Okay, now all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Bible, the glory of God, like this idea of the glory of God, you know, you could probably interpret it, talk about it a couple different ways. But it encompasses, a lot of times, it's just God making his presence known. People see the glory of God. It's him making his presence known to all creation. Okay, so it's like he's displaying his attributes, his holy, his good attributes, his love, his goodness, his kindness for all to see. Martha looks at the situation, the set of circumstances in front of her, and she uses human wisdom. Lord, the situation is hopeless. Don't remove the stone. And Jesus looks over at Martha and says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? How many of you here, well, let me ask it this way. If you were here last week, you heard Carrie and Sarah stand up here and give, give both of their testimonies. Remember that? They stood up here and just talked about what God had been doing in their lives. And when Sarah was up here, she said something that struck me. All right, she said, one night I was at wit's end. I didn't know how I could deal with the situation that we were in. Carrie being in a motorcycle accident, I just didn't know how I could deal with it. I was relying on my own ability. I was doubting God for a little bit. And she said, I just wanted to know that everything I'd studied, everything I did wasn't hogwash. Those were her words. Remember that? It's a Land O'Lakes term, hogwash. Not, not Polk County, Land O'Lakes. Um, so she said, I wanted to know that all this stuff that I've been studying wasn't hogwash. And she said, she cried out to God and just said, I want to know you're here. I want to know that you're real. And she said, she opened up her eyes. And she said, even though she knew no one else could see it, if a nurse walked in the room, the nurse wouldn't see it. But she said, even though no one else could see it, she looked around the room and she said she saw angels. Now, let me ask you a question. What did you think when she said that? Did you think it was hogwash? You think she was full of it? 
when she said she opened up her eyes after crying out to God saying, you know, my husband is laying here. He's in intensive care. He, he's on breathing machines. There's, I, mean, I just, Lord, I need to know this isn't hogwash. I need to know that you're real. I need to know that you're going to act on my behalf. And she said she opened up her eyes and just saw angels around the room. Just for a second. She said then they were gone. And as she's telling this story, I'm sitting here and I'm like, You know, I'm just, I don't know about you, but I'm like, I, part of me wanted to believe it. And part of me was like, yeah, I know that happened. The other part of me, you know, that human wisdom side of me said, no, 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 no. Like, I just, I don't understand that. How can that, how can that be? And, and some of us are so logical and so rational that we don't give God any room to work. Would you agree with that? We're so logical. We want to understand every little thing. And this isn't even about angels. This isn't about a hospital room. This isn't about one of our friends being in intensive care. This is about your situation with God, your circumstances with God, and what you think he can do. Whether you're going to take that first step of faith, whether you're going to actually walk, or whether you're going to say, mm, leave the stone right there, I don't trust what you're saying. That's, that's really what this is about. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? If you believed, you would see his goodness, his faithfulness, his comfort, his provision, his steadfastness, if you believed. But some of us won't move until we understand everything God's doing. And that won't ever happen, I can assure you. Because you can't see the glory of God until you believe. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's writing this letter to the church at Corinth, and he says, For we walk by faith not by sight. That's what he says. We walk by faith, not by sight. Some of you might be in a situation like Martha right now. I don't want to take this application any deeper than it needs to be, but some of you are in a situation just like Martha right now. You've asked God for direction. You got it. It's clear. You know what you need to do, but because you can't see the whole story, you're not moving. My challenge to you would be to move. Be obedient. It starts with little steps of faith. All right, verse 41 says, so they took the stone away. They took away the stone. I underlined it in my Bible. They took away the stone. All right, there'll be times you're like, now think about this. Lazarus is in the tomb. Lazarus can't get out of the tomb unless somebody does something with the stone. So Jesus looks, could Jesus move the stone? Absolutely. Could that stone have just been gone? Absolutely. Could he have asked Mary and Martha maybe to move the stone? I don't know how big the stone was. He probably could help them. He looks at the crowd and says, they removed the stone. Remove the stone. A group of people come and remove the stone. Sometimes you're not going to be able to do this on your own. Sometimes you need a tribe. You need a family. You need a church to help you move the stone, to help you get along the way. All right, so they moved the stone and Jesus prays right before he raises Lazarus, verse 41. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around so that they may believe that you sent me. He wants there to be no question from anybody who's standing around. This is a major, major miracle right before they go to the cross. Bethany was on the way to Jerusalem. A lot of people would have been coming in for Passover. This story would have been told and told and told and told and told. And then we're going to read about it thousands of years later. You want there to be any question how Lazarus was raised. It's the power of God. He prays and he says, Lord, let's do this, basically. Um, Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
Now, if you're in the crowd, right, the stone's moved. You were part of the funeral. You know what, what got carried down into the tomb. It says, Lazarus, come out. I, I don't know about you, but I've been a little nervous about what's going to happen. We're four days in. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen there. Hearts, you're probably like looking down that darkness, just waiting to see you know, what, what actually comes out. Scared to death. D.A. Carson said, and like he's been, but I'm 100 pastors who said this after him, but D.A. Carson said, it's a good thing Jesus specified, Lazarus, come out. Because <laughs> if he just said, come out, all the graves would have yielded their dead. That's what D.A. Carson said. All right, verse 44, it says, the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Who knows how he actually walked out of this grave. I mean, picture the stairs. He probably would have had to come up. I don't know if he hopped. I don't know if he waddled. I'm not trying to be funny. I just have no idea how he actually got out of there. But here's, here's what it says. Jesus said to them, the group again, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And I'm sure they were a little hesitant at first. I don't know what's going to be under these bandages. But I love how God invites the group to participate in the task. It's like us, the church. He's participating. We're participating in the work of God. He says, unbind them. All right? And so I, I, I love the picture. And I'm not, this is not an advertisement for small groups. But one of the reasons as pastors and as shepherds we think small groups are so important is because there's times where you can't do it yourself. When you get punched in the face, it's a lot easier to get up if somebody else is carrying you. Somebody else is picking you up. Right? When life just hits you and you're down, you got a group of people that come around you, they bring you meals, they pray over you, they love on you, they encourage you. They, and that, that's the kind of church family we want to be. Lazarus could not undo those bandages on his own. He's like this. Seriously. He couldn't take the bandages off of himself. Other people had to do it for him. So Jesus looks at them and says, take the bandages off of them. Paul tells the church in Gal- at Galatia, Galatians 6, at the very beginning of the chapter, he says, bear each other's burdens. If you read the New Testament, you see one another over and over and over and over. This idea of love one another, care for one another, bear each other's burdens, it's over and over and over. And the reason for that is that's how the church comes together. Carry out the work of God. All right, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So we're going to stop there for today. Um, but where, where do we go from here? Like, what do we, how do we process this? What do we do? Um, well, let me, let me say it this way. If you're, a, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you would not consider yourself someone who's a Christian, use today... And this story of Lazarus, this story of God raising someone from the dead, such a great picture of what God does in our lives. We are dead. We are walking dead without Christ. And we will die one day. And it'll be a split second transition into eternity where we will spend eternity somewhere. Use today and this story as an opportunity to say, Lord, I know you died on the cross for my sins. I don't understand it all. I don't, I don't know everything that's there. I don't know everything you're going to ask me to do. I don't know everything you want me to do. But I'm going to take that first step of faith and I'm going to put my trust in you. There's no better day to do that. Paul tells the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Place your faith in Christ. You are a new creation. The old, the old you, 
passed away. It's almost like a picture of Lazarus. The old you passed away. Behold, the new has come. It says, all this from God, who through Christ, meaning through Jesus and the cross, reconciled us to himself, brought us to himself, and then he turns around and gives us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, all right, you're, you're a child of mine. As Jake said, whether you're nine or whether you're 90, you're a child of God. And it says, all this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It says, in verse 19, it says, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Such a a beautiful picture. Um, And then for those who wouldn't consider yourself, or would consider yourself followers of Christ, you're a Christian, you're walking with God, be encouraged. Know that we serve a God who understands our sorrows. We serve a God who weeps with us, who empathizes with us, who understands the pain that we're going through in life. For him to stand in just that verse, Jesus, there's, I mean, it's just such a powerful, such a powerful reminder that when you're going through pain, you're going through heartache, you experience death in your life or heartache in your life or a spouse left you, whatever it is, Jesus wept. He knows the pain in this life, and that's not intended. You know, look above the pain, look above the circumstances, look to the next life, as Romans 8.18 says. If I do not consider the sufferings of this present world to be in comparison with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Um, Let's be a church that loves Jesus, knows Jesus, lift the theology off the page, have a real relationship with Christ. It's not about, I mean, the page is important, the Bible's important, studying the Word's important, but you're studying a person, a person. And that's, that's such an important thing to remember. Let's help people roll stones away. Let's help others who are coming into our church family take the bandages off. New believers who are coming in, help them. Help them get along the way. Help them move. And just know that, that, that God is one who cares for us. He's concerned about us. Um, and he weeps with us. There's a story in a book, and I'm going to hand it over to Jack, but there's a story in this, this book by Erwin Lutzer, and it was talking about World War II. It was talking about, it's just called When a Nation Forgets God. And he's talking about this story, and it just, it, you know, it, it probably doesn't correlate exactly, but when I, when I was listening to and thinking of the fact that God was weeping, and he was weeping at what was happening, it's just, it took me back to this story in World War II, and it was about this, this boy who lived through the Nazi Holocaust in Germany. And he said, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian, and we heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it. Because what could anyone do to stop it? He said a railroad track ran behind our small church. And each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance. And then the wheels coming over the tracks. And we became disturbed when we would hear the cries coming from the train as it passed us by. We realized that it was carrying the Jews like cattle in cars. And week after week that whistle would blow. And we dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that as we were sitting in our service, we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to their death camp. 
and their screams would torment us. We knew that the train was coming, and so we decided when we heard the whistle blow, we'd begin to sing at that time. And we'd sing hymns. And by the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. And if we heard the screams, we sang more loudly. And soon we heard them no more. He said, that was our way of coping. He says, years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore. But I still, still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me, forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians, yet did nothing to intervene on their behalf. And I, you know, when I read that story, the first time I read it, I was just like, man, what, what, what pain was God feeling? Looking down at his people in concentration camps way back in World War II, the trains carrying them to concentration camps, and the screams of those people and the pain of those people knowing what they're going through, and then his church just standing by singing louder and louder and louder to drown out the sound of those outside who are dying. And when I read it, I was just like, Lord, help us to be a church who cares about the pain in the world. It's not fun. We don't enjoy the heartache, but we live in a world with pain. We live in a world with sorrow and heartache, and we have the solution. We have a Savior. We have an empathetic God that the world doesn't even know exists. And I want so much for us to be a church who just introduces people to this empathetic God. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you just for your word. Thank you for John chapter 11. Lord, as we take communion, I just pray that we would use this time just to reflect on who you are, reflect on the greatness of who you are, the fact that you cry with us, you hurt with us. Lord, that you are a a, a God who understands our sorrows. Lord, I pray that we would just reflect on the fact of you on the cross. We reflect on your blood shed. Lord, and just thank you for the act of communion. Lord, we love you in your name. Amen.